Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our next AML Task Force webinar. Today, to today's topic is the curious case of money laundering controls. My name is Kate Surana, and I'm the Chief Compliance Officer and partner at a growing investment equity research firm in London, which is regulated by the FCNSCC. I'm delighted to be part of the FSG ML Task Force that was founded by the Sheriff of the City of London and Professor Michael Minelli last year. The AML Task Force desire is to strengthen and simplify anti-money laundering um, within the UK. Today, I am joined by Graham Gordon, and who is the CEO at uh, Prexity and a chair of the AML Task Force, and our esteemed guest, Professor Michael Levy, Professor of Criminology at Cardiff University. Professor Levy uh, commenced research on money laundering and compliance already in 1988. Michael has a distinguished track record of transnational and multidisciplinary research on this topic and most recently published a formative work on why do transnational legal orders persist? The curious case of money laundering controls. Michael has built an international reputation for excellence in both fundamental and policy-oriented research on money laundering, corruption, cybercrime, transnational organized crime, and white-collar crimes. First, on our today's agenda, um, we have a brief introduction of our AML task force by Graham. Then I will hand over to Michael to walk us through his slides. And then we will wrap up this session today with Q&A. So please prepare your questions for Michael during the presentation. I would also like to thank our sponsors for allowing us to host this session and many other events that we are preparing for you. And now without much overdue, Graham, could you please tell our audience what's the purpose of the AML task force and what we are trying to achieve? Certainly, thank you, Kate, if you want to move on. You, you uh, outlined at the beginning the start of my slide, which says to strengthen and simplify the anti-money laundering uh, within the UK. And that basically is our intent. We, the key element uh, we want to get across is that uh, initially we started looking at this when Brexit was uh, the main bugbear uh, for the city. And of course, with COVID, that's been multiplied. And now we want to make sure, really make sure that once we get out of COVID and we've gone through Brexit, that the City of London is not only open for business, but if someone wants to come and do business simply in London, it is simple for them to come and open a bank account, which at the moment, it isn't always the case. So as part of this process, we've been talking with the key bodies, with banks, with financial institutions, with trade bodies, and we want to galvanize and, and start the conversation going. We've had a number of webinars already, and this I'm delighted to welcome Michael Levy back uh, to talk today because his, uh, his input will be absolutely key to our future discussions. Uh, our, with the webinars and the seminars, unfortunately, most of the seminars have been canceled uh, due to COVID, but if you move on, if you'd be kind enough, uh, Kate. Uh, we will be doing a, a number of events over the, the coming uh, days and, and ye weeks and months. Um, and the next one we want to look at, the next one we'll be doing is the 23rd of July. We'll be looking at AML and technology and particularly at the solutions. 
at the end of the day, what we're looking to do is to get a protocol together that uh, financial services within the city and others will sign up to. We are hoping to have um, the uh, roundtable and seminars, but of course, COVID uh, will affect our uh, availability going forward. Uh, we, we're here. Uh, if anyone has any ideas, we're more than happy to, to look at them, more than happy to take those ideas. Uh, but I don't want to use up too much time for Michael, and I'm more than happy to, to pass across to you, Kate, so that we can hear what Professor Levy has to say today. Thank you. Thank you, Graham. Just, um, I would like to kick off our webinar with the latest news, namely the recent find that the FCA issues for Commerzbank uh, anti-money laundering failures a few days ago. As I'm working in the financial services sector as a compliance officer and also money laundering reporting officer, I was absolutely astonished by the second largest fine imposed by the city regulator that amounts to almost 38 million pounds. Looking at this piece of news in context, I'm wondering what is the true goal of AML and its rules? What is meant by AML effectiveness? What might we reasonably hope for and currently get evidentially from the system to deal better, more optimally with social bets, which AML aims to address? And now um, I will hand over to Professor Levy, uh, who is going to begin his presentation and also tell us about his most recent work that he has been working on. Okay. Well, thank you very much indeed, um, Kate. Um, next slide, please. The, it's a pleasure to have the opportunity to, uh, given to me by the FS Club and by your sponsors, to present some thoughts about the control of money laundering, a subject which has interested me since, or indeed before, uh, I was asked by the chairman of one of the banks and the Metropolitan Police Commissioner in 1988 to review the obligations that banks had towards the police and vice versa. Notice banks, not anybody else at that time. And the main object of the banks was to make sure that the building societies was in, were included so they wouldn't have a comparative advantage uh, compared with banks in exercising these powers. Now, what prompted this was the Brinks Matt Gold Bullion robbery. Uh, most people, unlike me, uh, would be too young to remember that. Um, but the, the Brinks Matt Gold Bullion robbery, um, about 35 million pounds at historic prices, quite a lot of money. And they managed to melt down all this gold, launder it um, without anybody, including their bankers, including the Bank of England, who ran out of 50 pound notes and had to print more, without any of those bodies uh, thinking there was anything wrong. And at that time, there was no system uh, to require them to report and no awareness. And at that time, we used to use a phrase very seldom heard now, customer confidentiality. This was apparently a very good thing and abusing it was a, a bad thing. Uh, next slide, please. Um, and my curious case um, was, of course, taken from Sherlock Holmes, the curious case of the dog that didn't bark in the night. Um, in this case, they're barking quite a lot. Next slide, please, Kate. Um, 
Now I'd like to set out some central problems with AML and the way it has developed in the hope that it will assist the task force and you, the audience, um, in thinking about this. And what lies behind it is my judgment that everybody is terribly, terribly busy um, coping with the technical demands of AML, which keep changing all the time, which keep rising all the time. But very few people have the energy or the time to ask more fundamental questions about what kind of job the system is doing or indeed what its objectives are. And for the avoidance of doubt, I don't believe that more data will solve this, but better data and more honest analysis are important for assessing what should not be done as well as what should be done. Next slide, please. Um, I want to talk about the problem of facts by repetition. The UNODC estimates that between 2 and 5% of global GDP is laundered each year. That's a pretty big range. And actually, I'm delighted that there is a big range because it shows they are at least being more honest than people who just give one clear sum uh, as the total. Um, in practice, we know the figure needs to be very large to gain attention, but beyond that, frankly, very few people pay any serious attention to what the number is, so long as it's big. And once a figure gets in official documents, uh, the newspapers, it gets endlessly recycled as if those criminal markets don't change over time and place. Now, I'm not as cynical as Dilbert is in the cartoon before you, um, but gauging the size of illicit flows in Africa or Asia or even Europe, some of which I've worked on with any precision, is difficult. In fact, frankly, it's impossible. You can produce a definitive figure, but it's not likely to be right. Um, and how do such figures actually help us assess effectiveness or changes in crimes or their organization? The national risk assessment estimates are very seldom seriously discussed in evaluations. They're just there. Have you done a thoughtful job? If you have, um, how are the people who do the evaluations going to, next slide please, going to uh, assess it. Uh, they're not generally professional economists, perhaps that's a good thing. So I want to now present some data for England and Wales. Scotland has its own rhythms, as we who live in times of COVID um, are well aware. Let's move to a more national portrait and away from these dodgy global figures. I'll return to the issue of definitions of organized crime later, but the Home Office has estimated the scale of organized crime turnover at around 13 billion pounds. I won't vouch for the accuracy, but even excluding the costs of all the frauds on private individuals, which are excluded from this, fraud predominates followed by drugs. The data show that what we freeze or confiscate is a small percentage of that, about 0.17% annually. So the gap increases each year. 
even disregarding the money laundered here from crime proceeds elsewhere in the world. Not very encouraging. The Americans, of course, take a lot more money in, um, but their criminal market is much bigger, so you'd hope they would. And the global total of around $2 billion in confiscations per year doesn't go that far as a percentage of the total crime trade. However, um, the dog sometimes does bark in the night. We've had a lot of large increases in the number of suspicious activity reports in the UK. And I've highlighted three sources of them. But what is enough reporting? You know, still bodies come to the, the regulated professions and say, you're not reporting enough. But what happens as a result? Back in 1994, I finalized a study which showed that about 0.86% of the 11,000 or so reports at the time led to something because I systematically went through all the cases and followed them up. Um, we don't know what that figure would look like today, almost certainly smaller, but that's still progress compared to what life would be like without SARS. Money laundering prosecutions are not the only test of effectiveness because SARS can lead to more asset recovery, to detecting others in the chain of offending, or prosecutions or other interventions for predicate crimes. I don't care if they prosecute for fraud rather than money laundering. I don't care if they prosecute for drugs trafficking rather than money laundering, but the FATF does because it asks for the number of money laundering prosecutions. And you need a good story if you're not going to show that you have a lot of them. But the evidence of success is not striking. We're awaiting reports from the government, reactions from the government, not just on SARS, but also on proceeds of crime reform. And I had the pleasure of working for the Law Commission on that. And there may be initiatives to encourage the private sector to take up asset recovery as bounty hunters, as has happened in some big cases of corporate fraud and IP theft. Next slide, please. So there will be action, I am confident, uh, COVID notwithstanding. Now, this is a crude transatlantic comparison. Uh, you might say, as an economist, well, if the Americans are fining all these people and the British aren't, then we'd expect a lot more money laundering in Britain than in the US. But that disregards whether the fines have an impact, and it disregards the fact that the fines usually apply to things that happened long, long ago, and very often to sanctions. Um, if persuasive methods change behavior more than penalties, and publicity, then the fact that we don't find all that many people, Comets Bank might take a different view, um, then that's justified. But the metrics of validity are just not there. The penalties uh, don't reflect the fact, uh, next slide please, that a lot of quiet work is going on uh, in the background 
that may have more impact or it may have no impact. Now this is uh, from the consultancy Encompass money laundering penalties in 2019. I kept the, the spelling mistake in. That should encourage you to look at the slide carefully. Um, it shows how vulnerable these totals are to shifts in regulatory action. Next year, Sweden and Estonia will be big players and will be there, and certainly the Netherlands will too. And basically, the theme is that the more pressure is exerted by FATF or the U European Union, the more we can expect these data to go up. But these are virtue signaling and they're revenue generating by governments. They're not indicators by themselves of effectiveness. They're indicators of doing something. If we were really effective, we might have no reason to penalize. Next stop, next slide. So some issues to consider. As we know from government COVID pronouncement of infections and death rates, um, data don't always tell the right picture. The former Personally, it's a good thing to be forced to show that you are doing something rather than nothing. I think uh, we're losing. I think we're losing yeah. Michael a couple of times. So uh, I apologise. Yeah. Oh, he's back. Sorry, Michael. Back to you. Okay. Um, like Arnie, I'm back. Um, the. NRAs and evaluations require SARS and enforcement data, and I think it's a good thing to be forced um, to show that you're doing something, but they're not the same as money laundering data. Before 2013, um, money laundering evaluations were only about the process and the institutions and the legislation. The key thing was to be able to show that you were in line with the others. Now countries are expected to provide data, but the data um, are not um, a ratio of anything. They're just there and they're often proclaimed as very well without a lot of data um, and without any evidence of real impact. There are successes and a lot of effort goes into the reporting process. Uh, I'm on the uh, Law Society's Money Laundering Task Force and I know we put in a lot of effort. Um, but public investment has always been rather modest and I draw your attention to the varied criteria. First of all, whether we're aiming to please the public, is that our only goal? Second, whether we're trying to satisfy our peers in the international community so they don't punish us for doing a bad job. And third, whether we're aiming actually to reduce crimes or their particularly harmful forms of organization, whether 
you know, local or national gangster domination or state-sponsored crime. Um, next slide, please. Um, now, we know that there are some adverse outcomes of AML, and I'm not going to go through this slide. Of these bad side effects, uh, which the task force will examine in some detail, only de-risking has received serious attention. And I was one of the co-authors of a, a financial conduct authority review of de-risking. It's a highly intractable problem because governments are fearful of signaling that any AML root control should be slowed down like uh, SARS, like COVID testing in America. And because American courts lie in wait for any tolerance of activities that however rarely lead to terrorism or weapons of mass destruction. The Arab Bank case shows the importance of civil litigation, which political pressure alone cannot control. Next slide, please. So what should our strategy be? Far be it from me, a mere academic, to suggest this. Um, but this comes from Alice in Wonderland. Which way should I go? asks Alice. It depends on where you want to get to, replies the Cheshire Cat. I don't much mind where I get to, says Alice. In that case, says the Cheshire Cat, it doesn't much matter which way you go. Um, now, as it happens, I was given a hundred lines at school not to grin like a Cheshire Cat, and that didn't have much effect on me. Um, and perhaps these FACF statements don't have as much effect as they would like on how we behave in the financial sector. But governments and international bodies have been extreme in specifying AML strategies, both higher and lower priorities. They've been poor at prioritizing predicate crimes too, only we see a rise in the range of their coverage with which I sympathize. I think it's a good thing to uh, try and get money back, for example, from the proceeds of kleptocracy. But being good at everything is terribly difficult, especially with the modest public resources that we put into financial investigation for fraud and money laundering, as recent government uh, reports have shown. There's been far too much pressures on increasing SARS and not enough on doing more with them. Next slide, please. So let's think about better learning and data. Controversially, the term organized crime is not fit for purpose conceptually. Any concept that ranges from the mafia to three burglars in the window cleaning business or a couple of young hackers is a terrible concept. Organized crime. Image of the Godfather or the Sopranos or El Narco in our heads, but that's too crude. The modern form of organized crime, they don't need hierarchies. There are some hierarchies, 
but they don't need them to do crime. And we still teach placement, layering, and integration. Uh, first broad I think we've lost Michael again. Sorry, Michael. You've got as far as saying the first rule of integration, and then we lost you. Yeah. Okay. Um, we still teach that as a kind of moral catechism, but even for cash crimes, a lot of people become criminals to have a good time and die young. They don't practice social distancing. Um, rather than live in their laundered investments. In many frauds, the placement stage is bypassed. So in essence, criminals only need to be as sophisticated as we make them. We need to learn more from the cases that we handled, and the National Economic Crime Center is aiming to do just that, and it has been doing that but it's been a long time coming. We know astonishingly little systematically about the price of laundering, how easy it is to get another bank or another professional to act for you if one refuses or is taken out. And we need to do a lot better on that. And one of the articles on the website reviews the worldwide evidence on that. Next slide, please. So some issues of the balance for the ways forward. Uh, clarity begins at home. Charity also begins at home, but clarity is also important. We need to be a lot clearer about what we're trying to achieve and about the difference between doing things better or cheaper, that's efficiency, and impacting on criminal behavior and or financial integrity, that's effectiveness. In my view, not all dirty money is the same, but we cannot expect bankers or professionals to know where the, the dirty money comes from. All they have to do is, is develop suspicions intelligently and report them. Um, we need more public investment in following up SARS and other financial data and frauds. We also need to think more carefully about the impacts of financial penalties and corporate monitorships. But as Yes Minister would say, rethinking AML is brave, Minister. Um, the Court of Appeal has just upheld the preventative ideal in law on, an, on uh, dealing with antique ivory and has said preventative thinking is an important part of the function of law. Uh, but it would be better to reduce our expectations of AML to its original purpose as a crime investigation and prevention tool among many, rather than thinking that we can re-regulate the globe. Otherwise, as Churchill said, uh, when he was asked what his strategy was during the war, my strategy is KBO, keep buggering on. Um, 
it worked for him, it worked for Britain, it worked for the free world, it didn't work for Germany. Um, the, but we need to rethink what we're doing uh, quite a bit. I'm not against improving efficiency. That's a really important part of the system. We need to do things better and cheaper, uh, have fewer obstacles in the way, be less ritualistic uh, than the EU and FATF would have had, would have us do. Um, resistance is not futile, um, but we need to uh, try and move forwards with what we're doing. And uh, that's my core goal um, in trying to get you to rethink. Uh, today, uh, that's a hard role because we need to negotiate the political reality, which is that uh, large bureaucracies want us whatever the theory of risk-based approach may be, actually to follow their injunctions. And if we don't, uh, then the, the fines of Comets Bank uh, may awake us, even though they are a tiny proportion of the amount of violation that has gone on. So expect more fines, expect more sanctions, but let's try and have a cogent argument about what is really needed and about what the priorities of the system should be and about the importance, if we're going to spend more money on, on identifying and reporting stuff, uh, on what the public sector and the private sector are going to do with that data um, for better prevention. It's still depressing that so many romance scams are going on. Some of you may think all romance is a scam. We don't need to go there. Um, but how many romance scams and other kinds of frauds are still going on despite all the AML efforts and CDD and EDD that are going on? Likewise, transnational bribery, etc. It's a big challenge. Um, we need to get smarter at it. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, uh, Michael, for your excellent presentation. Uh, can, can, I would like to encourage all of you to join me at least with a virtual round of applause. And now it's time for questions. So I have received a couple of them. Uh, so Professor Levy, would you help us with addressing uh, the first one, which is, is AML strengthened by simplification? or is simplified by being strengthened? Hmm. Um, I think simplification is a, uh, is a good thing. Uh, it, it encourages to think about the purposes. Um, I think um, it, it doesn't always lead to better results. Um, uh, but I think we, I think we've reached the stage where we're trying to do too much with the system, and the public authorities are spending so much time processing uh, suspicions that they've got very little resource left to do anything about it. So in that sense, uh, sometimes more, less is more. Exactly. We have another question, uh, Michael, and the question is 
under the wave of globalization, how to balance the FCA's anti-money laundering regulations and the demand of foreigners' accounts requirements for operating companies and tourist consumption in the UK? So how can we balance it? Um, well, I think in a sense, yeah, this is where we get back to what is your goal? If your goal is to avoid punishment, um, then just do what the regulators say. Um, and that's why there needs to be more of a dialogue. I'm very sympathetic to the FCA's problem because the FCA's problem is also negotiating with the EU before and after Brexit um, and with the FATF. So in a sense, it's like a set of punishments. Uh, we're living in a toxic uh, culture and until people can have reasoned arguments um, about whether we really need this uh, set of rules applied to this, what is the harm of doing less in this area has to be, I think, the, the argument. It's always possible to find some harm, but the balance of argument uh, in the preventative mode has to be uh, what are we actually preventing? What harms are we preventing, controlling by um, by doing this rather than not doing it? You know, what's the counterfactual? Now, that's a very hard thing for any individual firm uh, to get involved in. But they, we need to find ourselves in a situation where we're all in listening mode more often, and then. If a scandal erupts, you can expect um, to, uh, to, to get jumped on from a great height. Um, and if there's evidence that criminals are abusing the facility, then likewise. But the trouble is that so much of the argument is hypothetical at the mm. moment. So we need to get a little bit dirty with what the criminals are doing and get that learning uh, forward and being transmitted. Of course, you know, you can't always fight the last war. You, you need to be prepared for what criminals may shift to. But we need to have uh, more of a dialogue between uh, the financial and other professional sectors and regulators and between the regulators of the regulators than we've been able to do in the past. Uh, basically, everybody has been too scared. Um, to try to argue that. Michael, I think there is another question which really nicely follows uh, on to this one. How, and this is more of a philosophical, theoretical question, how should we judge the success of AML? Well, um, opinions vary. In general, it shouldn't be judged by the number of fines or their size. Um, that's a kind of macho approach. Um, it could be judged by the reduction in money laundering, but there we confront the problem that we don't have any plausibly sensible uh, figures for the level of money laundering. Uh, you know, if we if we come up with a lower figure, we say, "Aha, we've succeeded," but the range in the estimation is so big that we can't judge whether we're getting better or worse. 
uh, what we might more sensibly do, I mean, what's the object? The object is to reduce crime and to mm -hmm. reduce the harmful organization of crime. In other words, we don't want any uh, mafias operating. We don't want any cartels. We don't want any, it, it, you know, we don't want any local organized crime people taking over our cities or our rural areas and terrifying people into buying their security services from them. Mm -hmm. So those, if we, if we map those issues out better and we can show that AML uh, reporting has a, an effect on, uh, on those things, improves proceeds of crime confiscation, civilly and criminally, um, leads to um, more convictions of people, whether for money laundering or not, um, leads to more interventions of a preventative kind by multi-agency working, using the private sector intelligently, as well as other non-police agencies, then I would say those are really good indicators of AML doing its job. And we haven't been doing that enough. So what about the effectiveness of the SDR? Is it quantity or quality? Um, I would personally go for quality. And if we don't get as many as we did last year, yeah, that's not a failure. Uh, I'll give you a real example. Uh, after, the, after its evaluation some years back, uh, Germany was criticized for not having enough uh, suspicious activity reports. Um, it said, well, you know, our object is not to have more. Our object is to have good quality ones like Switzerland, uh, where we can intervene and we can do a lot with them. But they said, no, that's not acceptable. You've got to have a lot more. So the next year they doubled the number of, uh, of SARS. And then the financial uh, uh, intelligence unit said, but the quality is deteriorating. We're not getting... Uh, as good, you know, we can't do as much with them as we used to. Well, you told us to give more, uh, and that's what we've done. You know, you can't have everything. So personally, if some things get missed out, um, then the bank could still be looking uh, at a money laundering charge in extremis um, if it had been behaved really, really badly or a regulatory fine. Um, but I think it's far better to focus on 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 getting some action. I mean, I, I'm all in favor of the data sharing and stuff. I think it's, these initiatives are excellent. There are a few glitches in the way that they're working, but these are these are good things to happen. Doing more with the same or doing more with less. So for me, quality is more important. But I can understand it uh, if people think well. What's the downside of my reporting extra that's safer for us as an institution and for me as an MLRO? Uh, I think that's a regrettable trend. Um, Michael, speaking of um, SIA, SIA, sorry, speaking of um, SARS, when, when you were talking about the huge research that you have done, there is a question whether you have analyzed uh, the whole set of 478,000 to spot patterns, criminal connections, and so on? Or 
where they just follow up individually? Um, well, this was some work I did in the early 90s when um, when I took a random sample of a thousand out of 12,000, so it was a good sample, and, and followed them up systematically to see what had happened to them. Uh, that hasn't been done to my knowledge since. Uh, I have not been doing it. You'd have to, if you look at the legislation, you'd have to be a constable um, to, to do that. I, that could be one. But that, but that kind of work um, has been done by intelligence bodies up to a point, um, and, uh, but it's not being done all the time. And the, the truth is that what you would be doing is analyzing patterns from the suspicions. If the suspicions leave things out, or if the suspicions are mistaken, then you'd have, um, you know, just as the, we don't know if the antibodies really do insulate us, um, you know, mean we're not gonna catch COVID. Um, you know, we may be producing patterns of things that were our suspicions to start off with. And that's what black people complain about in stop and search. Um, you know, and that's why you go through customs. I'm less likely to be searched uh, than people from Africa and Asia. Um, but the, um, so that doesn't necessarily tell you the true picture. True picture is only found if we have the results to really follow through these things and decide whether these suspicions are founded or not. And that's the intellectual work that needs to go on and is done more in Switzerland where they have a much lower number of reports uh, than, than we have here. So we have a tragic choice. Indeed. And I also need to say that we have another tragic thing which is coming out because the session is going to be over in the next three minutes. So I have a last question from the audience. So, and then we will wrap up. The largest Israeli um, was fined more than 900 million for tax evasion crimes. Now the question is, is tax evasion the new frontier in the, um, in the crime agenda? Uh, yes. Um... It is. I mean, it's very difficult, of course, you've got to assess also whether the proceeds are proceeds of foreign tax evasion if you're taking on a client. I mean, a lot of these things are, are technically very tricky. Um, and, um, you know, there's a lot of good activity going on, money muling, for example, or MasterCard are playing an important role. Um, for these big things, um, it is the next frontier. Some cynics said that was always the objective. But for example, money laundering tax was not a predicate under US money laundering legislation. But that is the, uh, a, an important new frontier. But all the other frontiers are still being breached as well. And that's what makes it such a, a fascinating and bloody difficult area to look at and deal with. Excellent. Perfect. Thank you so much, uh, Michael. This was a very informative present presentation. I'm sure everyone really enjoyed it. I just want to um, again thank you for uh, joining our session today. I would also like to thank our sponsors and I would like to remind the audience of our next uh, webinars. We have a packed schedule of events 
and all different um, webinars that you can see on, on the screen. The next one is in uh, July. So I hope to see you all there. Thank you, uh, Michael, for joining us. And also thank you, Graham, uh, for telling us more about the task force. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for the privilege of uh, talking to you today. Excellent. I wish you a wonderful day and we look forward to seeing you in our next webinar. Thank you.